for those who are visitors, I've been doing a sort of a short series on what happens on a Sunday morning. What are the things that make up our worship service? And this is the one I've been dreading the most and looking forward to the least. What is it about the reading of Scripture and the sermon? This could become a confessional more than it is a sermon. But what happens at this point in the service? One of the things I hope we've been learning is that this is not what Sunday morning's about, that the hymns we sing catechize us. They bring us an opportunity for lament and prayers, the offering, and we will do that slightly differently uh, this morning. Don't panic if you're on the finance team and you're thinking there is no offering, it will come eventually, maybe in a different place that will make us think about it more. And we're doing that because I've been quite taken by a book, Embracing the Kingdom, by Jamie Smith or James K.A. Smith. You need a academic kind of name when you try to sell uh, academic books. And uh, Jamie Smith's a philosopher involved in Calvin College, and he's in the middle of a series, well, he's two-thirds of the way through a series, on the liturgy and how the liturgy should be that which socially imagines us, that it should be something that challenges the liturgies of the shopping mall and the sports stadium. Um, Contemporary things that Smith believes, particularly in America, and I don't think any less here, um, give us our desire, our love, what comes out of our heart, as we've just been reading about in Luke chapter 6. And um, so at the end of this book where Smith's talking about how habit, liturgy, story, give us identity, he comes to all these different aspects of what would be a reformed church service. And so this morning, the sermon, that's what we're doing. Can I start by saying that um, a while back at a wedding, not in Fitzroy, or involving anybody from Fitzroy, I got into conversation with another minister who was attending the wedding service and somebody who was singing at the wedding service. And at the reception, we just happened to get chatting about wedding services, and all three of us almost to an agreement went, isn't it great when it's full of pagans? And we all nodded very quickly about that. It's great when you do a wedding service and the singing's awful. It's freeing. It's liberating. And here's the thing. It's spiritually far more intoxicating. The louder the singing of the hymns at a wedding service, the less I will converse about Jesus at the reception. But fill a wedding with people who don't go to church, who don't even think they believe, and I will spend the wedding reception and have spent a weekend where the reception went on into the next day talking about nothing but Jesus. It was interesting that the three of us lined that up. Then we asked, why? Why would it be the case that the most fertile soil for sermons and songs are those who are not churched. 
Why would that be the case? Well, the truth is that this morning as I start out in my sermon, you are churched. And therefore, there are many sieves that my sermon will go through. There are many bingo cards sitting on your pew, in your mind, that you're going to tick off. They used to laugh when I was in chaplaincy. They had bingo cards. They said, he's going to mention Manchester City. You two. Today it might be Colossians remixed. Tom, I don't know who it would be. But anyway, they all said that most Sunday nights in chaplaincy, they were able to have a bingo. He's mentioned all five. But it's the same with yourselves. You've all got your expectations down through years of social imagining. The church you grew up in. How was the sermon there? When you found that church that you really thought you liked, what was the sermon like there? And when you ended up here because there was nothing else that you really liked, what is it that has caused you to have the expectations of sermons that you have now? Someone exegesis in the Greek and the Hebrew, verse by verse. Some grew up and they think, just give us a wee text and come out of a text and don't get too complicated. Some would rather it was thematic. Some want the gospel and to be told you need to turn or burn every Sunday. For some, you wanted a little bit more academic. Come on, Steve, get into what the history of that time was and what the commentators are saying. Some of you want to be culturally relevant, more Mumford and Sons and less Matthew. All kinds of expectations that you have that the pagan wedding crowd don't have. So as soon as you speak into it, they respond. They respond without their expectations. Maybe the stony ground and the thorns are not with the heathens after all. It's a thought. It's a difficulty for Jonathan and I because we can never meet those expectations, especially in a group as diverse as the one in front of me right now. As somebody said to me recently, well, you realize that nobody's ever going to be happy in Fitzroy. And that's because of the tension of the differences that are out there right now as I start to preach. That was a freeing moment for me because as soon as I got to the fact that you're never all going to be happy at the one time, you're right. So don't try to make everybody happy with every sermon. But what is the sermon in the scriptures for in the middle of a service? Jamie Smith talks about four things. Now, to be honest, you would need to read the book because he takes these philosophically in all kinds of ways through the book before he comes to mention them in the part about the sermon. But the scriptures that Rose has just read and the sermon, as I am attempting to do pretty badly at this moment in time, should be about four things. It should be the script of the worshiping community. It should be that which is the story that gives identity to the people of God. It is the constitution of the baptismal city, and it is the fuel of the Christian imagination. What should I be doing? Well, Tom Wright's put it as well as anybody else can, and it's not difficult to find some quotes. You know a quote's been overused when you can put it into Google and it comes straight up. If you're looking for a quote in a book by Jamie Smith that I'm using, you probably have to read the entire book. But when it comes to that quote of Tom Wright's, which says we need to be looking at the scriptures with first century, eye, first century eyes and 21st century questions, 
It's been overused. But that's what we should be doing. Reading first century scripts, Gary will be doing this tonight far better than I will, and I'll explain maybe why Gary does that far better than I do and why that's not part of the Sunday morning sermon as such. But we need to be looking at these texts and saying, what are they saying in the first century? And then what are they saying to us in the 21st century? What are the issues today that these words from another century can engage with and how do they engage? It's about the text and its context into the cultural context that we now live in. And I have to say that most of what I grew up with pretty much had neither. Somebody threw out a wee text and we preached about that wee text, unrelated to any of the texts around the wee text, unrelated to the first century that it was written in, and usually not really applied too much to the 21st century other than to tell you you needed to come forward at the end of the service and get saved again. John Stott puts it in a way that I think is much better, this engagement with Scripture. He asks, how can we develop a Christian mind which is both shaped by the truths of historical biblical Christianity and acquainted with the realities of the contemporary world? Do you see what he's doing? He's trying to get that first century eyes. How can we develop a Christian mind that's shaped by first century eyes, the truths of historical biblical Christianity? And then 21st century questions, acquainted with the realities of the contemporary world. Here's how he says we should do it. We refuse to become so absorbed in the word that we escape into it and fail to let it confront the world. Or to be so absorbed in the world that we conform to it and fail to subject it to the judgments of the word. For me, there will be a mantra you will hear, you can put it on your bingo card. As we come to read these scriptures, as we come to wrestle with the life of Jesus in the first century and how it applies to the 21st century, I will say endlessly that we're looking for a radical, rebellious, alternative imagining. What do I mean by that? Well, we read this morning at the start of our service, Philippians chapter 2. What we find in this first century context, I hope, is that the church in Philippi, like most of the churches Paul's writing to, is one that is divided. There's all kinds of tensions. There's all kinds of issues that are separating them and pulling them apart. And Paul says to them, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he gives that early church hymn, perhaps, that Christology, that idea of Paul on Jesus, about how Christ emptied himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what we have here in this context is a divided community. And what we have here is Paul inspiring them to something greater, giving them an imagining, a desire for something more. Look, this is the way that it is, but think better. Consider human flourishing that would allow you to be united and like-minded 
And then he says, well, how do you do that? Well, it all starts with me. I need to get myself sorted. I need to get rid of my vain conceit. I need to get rid of my pride and become humble. I need to consider others better than me. If we did that, suddenly it changes things. But where do we find the narrative? Where do we find the script or the constitution? Where do we find the fuel that will fire that imagining? We find it in Jesus. We find it in his life and his example and in his offering for us. I always find the Sunday before the 12th interesting. Much more interesting in some of the places that I've been before here. But interesting all the same. What does our contemporary issue particularly highlight it this week? Even as Jonathan has asked us to be still and consider the streets around us. I wonder to myself quite honestly. If we put the money that we put up lampposts and flags to a better education system, how would that change Northern Ireland? How much money has been put up flagposts in the last few weeks? There's tension on the streets. Last December has caused the tensions to rise. Not only are a loyalist working class community that feel isolated, cut off, responding to December's events by putting more flags up than the last few years, but we're beginning to even see it in those areas on the other side of the divide who are not being encouraged to put flags up by their community leaders. There's tension on the streets. It highlights the division that still needs to be sorted. Where does the script, where does the narration of our identity Where does the fuel of our imaginations, where does the radical rebellious alternative imagining from the scripture meet us in the week that is ahead? That's what we should be wrestling with with the first century text to 21st century questions of divided Northern Ireland. Finding our example and the fuel in the life of Christ himself. I was taken aback this week. I was coming back This is quite an interesting few seconds of sermon here. Try and get your computer to read all the stuff that's going on. I'm coming back from Clonard Monastery. Got your contacts right and your computer's reading that well. Haven't listened to John Kyle from the PUP. Computer a wee bit fuzzy already. I'm taking Father Martin McGill back to Lena Doon from Clonard. That seems okay in your computer readout. And as we arrive into Lena Doon, I'm always struck by some of the graffiti that's not what I was used to growing up in Harryville or Gilgorm around Ballymena. And as I'm just sort of always acclimatizing myself to this graffiti, Father Martin says, I prayed for the royal family at Mass on Monday. Clonard, Joan Kyle, Lena Doon praying for the royal family at Mass in St. Oliver Plunkett's church. And my mind, my computer's not reading it at all. I, I sort of said to him, you, you did what? Was that safe? Because this is the most militarized part of Belfast during the Troubles, and I would say the most militarized part of Belfast. He said, yes. I was just talking it was Sir Sir Oliver Plunkett Day. And what did that mean? He said, well, Sir Oliver Plunkett, when he went to the gallows, he prayed for the royal family. He what? 
St. Oliver Plunkett, as he was going to the gallows, unjustly, most likely, he denied all the charges against him. He asked for the forgiveness for those who had laid these false charges on him. And then he prayed for the king and queen and the Duke of York. So, on St. Oliver Plunkett Day, in St. Oliver Plunkett's church, in Lena Doon, I thought the only way I can deal with this is to do what St. Oliver Plunkett did. It didn't only make me think about the caricatures or the stereotypes that we have of chapels in Lena Doon, or the saints of the Catholic Church, or whatever else. It was the biblical example of Oliver Plunkett that really took my attention. On his point of execution, he followed his Jesus right to the gallows. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Oliver Plunkett, with a radical, rebellious, alternative imagining in a world that doesn't forgive those who execute them, took the first century Jesus approach. And it made me ask about ourselves. Have we that alternative imagining? Are these words that we're reading from Philippians 2 in any way being applicable and applied to our lives at this moment in time? Are they just words that we've heard so many times and we agree with so much? Or are we actually prepared to put them into practice? When our desires get aimed for the kingdom as the scriptures and the sermons should take us to, then these words need to become alive within us. So scripture reading on a Sunday morning is incredibly important. A sermon, no matter how Jonathan and I struggle to do it, is incredibly important. But much more important is what happens to those words and them becoming alive within us. Colossians 3 and 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly. The last few weeks, for some reason, and more than one occasion in Fitzroy, and this is what I find fascinating about sermons. I think if we came to it, maybe more the way of the pagan wedding, we might hear some things that just seem to creep back in and around. That actually is a word not just for us as individuals, but maybe what God is saying to communities. And in the last few weeks, one of the things that has kept coming back is that we shouldn't be those who just think about the word, but we should be those who do the word. The word became flesh. This is a heart and flesh spirituality. Jesus does not give recipes that show the way to God as other teachers of religion do. He is himself the way. Karl Barth. Jesus does not give recipes that show the way to God as other teachers of religion do. He is himself the way. So the scriptures are not a recipe. The sermon is not a recipe like other teachers of religion give. The scriptures, Christ himself, is a way that is flesh and blood. It's not just about thought, though thought is incredibly important in it. 
It is about desire. Those things that come out of the heart that we read in the passage before the sermon. And let's get to there. Who are the wise people? Those who read the scriptures? Those who listen to the sermon? No, the wise who build their houses on the rock are those who practice these words. My dad, when I was playing golf, and actually, I see a couple of Whitehead members over on the right-hand side here. I remember going to play Whitehead in the East Antrim League. And it was those days when I took my golf very seriously. And I'd never been beaten in the East Antrim League. So we're going to Whitehead, and I'm told that's a bit of a tricky course. I'd never seen it. So I said to my dad the night before, have you any tips? He says, well, on the first... Golfers are great at telling you where every bunker is and how many shots they had in every bunker and why it didn't come out of the bunker and all that kind of stuff. The detail they give is quite incredible. Don't ask somebody at the end of a Saturday, how did the game go? Because you could be there for quite a while. So I said to my dad, well, what about Whitehead? Any clues? And he said, Steve, on the first, you want to... I can't remember exactly. But I can remember taking all these copious notes so that I would look like, you know, Rory. Not that Rory was born at the time, but uh, and I would bring my notebook out on the tee and I would look at it and I would say, now my dad says, and I've got to be careful of those trees on the left and that comes, the, the fairway comes down from the left so much. And I had all these notes. I had the script. I had the scriptures of Whitehead for that morning. But let me tell you something. You see, once I'd played the course, I would have played it at least more wisely the next time. Because the words were really not that which was most important. The experiencing of applying the words and the maps and the guidelines were what made me experienced. You know, they'll say to you, Brian O'Driscoll should have been on on Saturday. Of course he should. I still haven't even cheered the win. Dampened it for the Irish, and at least Johnny Saxton gave us something to cheer about there. But why did they think Brian O'Driscoll should have been on? Because he's not the player he was five or ten years ago. He should have been on because with 20 minutes to go when it was 1916, I would rather he had been on. Because of his experience. What does that mean? Because they're all professional players. They've all done the training. They've all looked at the codes. They all know what the other guy's going to do. But something about living it changes what it is. We need to live it. And if scripture and sermon are going to become important in our lives, then it's not about going out and saying, that was an interesting word this morning. Did you think the bit about, you know the Philippian context? Yeah, maybe we need to do that. We've changed our winter series because... We weren't sure that we would get the context right. We do need to think about those things. But what we really need to be doing is we need to be living these things out. Last Sunday morning, what struck me about David and Goliath was that he went and he got involved in it. He had to take the stones and the sling and go into the battle. 
So this week we go into Northern Ireland with sunshine, maybe, and the 12th. So we need to take those things that the scriptures should be. We need to take the script of a worshiping community that shows us a Jesus who gave up his rights for other people. We need to find ourselves in this story, following this story the way Oliver Plunkett did, right to his death. We need to live a constitution of a baptismal city. Show the values in Northern Ireland of a people who have come through the waters of baptism and are new and thinking alternatively. Can we say that the church has been that down through these last 50 years? And then we need to fuel the Christian imagination with a desire for something more heavenly. For a human flourishing. For something better. This is the telos of the polis. It's the values and the imaginings and the hopes of the city of God. And it needs lived. As we in a moment come round this table, let's think back a couple of weeks to what we were thinking about then. The offering. The first offering is the offering we celebrate. Christ offers himself for us. In the covenant response to that, we offer ourselves to him. And we offer ourselves to him not because we are worthy, but because we are unworthy and he is worthy for us. But we offer ourselves to live the life that he lived. To be prepared to take his will, not ours. To be prepared to humble ourselves. Not see ourselves with vain conceit. But that each of us should not look after the interests of our own but the interests of others. Let's pray before we sing. Here is bread and here is wine. Lord, the 21st century question that will be on our news and on our streets in our city this week will be what does forgiveness look like? What does reconciliation look like? What is hope for Northern Ireland? And we come with a script, with a story, with a constitution, with that which would fuel the imaginations for a better day. This first century story can inspire our 21st century questions. So may it come to dwell in us richly. Would we become doers of this word like wise men who dig deep and build firm foundations? As we come around your table to receive your blessing, may we in turn give ourselves to go back onto these streets and into this city 
to bring a rebellious, radical, alternative imagining in our words, our attitudes, and our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.